we choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha. Greetings and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. It's a good day for all of us to be here. And now, in addition to relativity, this is First Voices Radio. And I send you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Yasopus, where the active breath of the Munsee Lenape Nation lives in what is now temporarily called the Catskill Mountains by the settlers Dutch and Americans. Regardless, they are the highlands of the Yasopus. I'm Teokazin Ghost Horse, and this is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio. And from the Red Lake Ojibwe Nation, Liz Hill, the producer of First Voices Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprouts, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. Our theme song is Tahi by Moana and the Moa Hunters. Our guest, Dr. Tink Tinker, is the Clifford Baldridge Emeritus Professor of American Indian Cultures and Religious Traditions of ILIF School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. He is a citizen of the Osage Nation, should be pronounced correctly, Wasaji, and has been an activist in urban American Indian communities for four decades. He joined the faculty at Islip School of Theology in 1985 and brought an American Indian perspective, predominantly your Christian school. Dr. Tinker is committed to a scholarly endeavor that takes seriously both the liberation of Indian peoples from their historic oppression as colonized communities and the liberation of Euro-Christian Americans, the historic colonizers and oppressors of Indian peoples whose self-narrative typically avoids naming the violence committed against Indians in favor of romance narrative that justifies their Euro-Christian occupancy of Indian lands. He has served in a leadership council of the American Indian Movement and Colorado and was active in the 30-year project to rid Colorado of its state-proclaimed Columbus Day holiday, which was finally successful in April 2020. The reason why I wanted to interview Tink was an article he had written relating to the wrongs of Iliff School of Theology dealing with some gruesome history. And really interested in the article that he released a few days ago about the Iliff School of Theology was gifted a book of Christian history bound in flayed skin of a murdered Lenape man. And it was on display from 1893 to 1974. And this initial murder has been traced to the area known as West Virginia. The Quaker murderer, Daniel Morgan, proudly 
documented his killing in his family Bible and used a skin trophy as a cover to bind a copy of Joanne Lawrence von Mosheim's 1752 work in Latin, which uh, is basically a compendium for Christian institutions, but that the Eilif institution is trying to deal with its part in such a gruesome history. And that's where you come in, Tink. I'm glad that you're here, and I'm honored that you're here again to tell us more about the truth in history that we haven't heard so much. So but I thank you for being here. Always good to be with you. One quick correction. The murderer was David Morgan. Part of the legend is that it was Daniel Morgan, who was the famous Revolutionary War general. Uh, it just adds import to the trophy. And, of course... This thing we call framing is everything. How you frame something determines how it's received. For instance, we're now told that the politically correct language to refer to our overseas uh, invasive relatives is settler colonialism. I'm sorry, I'm not buying it. Settler is not the same as being a squatter on Indian land. And what we have is... uh, serial squatting across the continent. And that's what David Morgan was doing. There was no treaty, but there are all kinds of historical scholars who go back and try to rectify David Morgan squatting by saying it was actually uninhabited land, as if we can imagine uninhabited North American territory anywhere. And of course, the uh, hard thing about calling it uninhabited territory is how do you account for all the Indians who were killed in West Virginia and the serial murder that went on? David Morgan is only one. He had a nephew just north in Morgantown who had a record of over 100 Indian kills. That was his profession, killing Indians and claiming bounty. David Morgan uh, in 1779 killed not one but two Lenapis to protect his squatter's rights. And we're told by his son that David Morgan even spoke the Delaware language, Lenape. What's going on here? Why did he choose killing an Indian instead of talking? Well, there's a certain testosterone and valor projected in killing an Indian so that David Morgan could brag in his family Bible, I've killed seven Indians in my life. Wow. <laughs> These are It's like killing seven deer or seven buffalo for food, only this isn't for food. This is for taking over somebody else's home, their property. David Morgan was converted to Methodism from his early Quakerism. Others were in Fairmont, West Virginia, where he lived. And one of those was uh, the Barnes family, William Barnes. And one of his nephews, also named William, somehow ended up with this book after the Lenape gentleman was skinned and the skin was tanned. They used that human leather in order to bind this book of Christian history. They used the rest of it from both men to make trinkets like shot pouches, uh, etc. But the biggest piece was used to cover this book. 
Well, David Morgan moved to Ohio, had a son. His son became a Methodist minister and found this book such a treasure, a trophy, that he took it in the old Methodist itinerant system from church to church because Methodist ministers then were moved every year. So for 40 years, he moved every year with that book in hand to a new assignment until he moved to Colorado and in 1893 decided to support this new school of theology, a Methodist school, with the gift of this book as a real treasure, which then the library never circulated, but put under glass at the entrance of the library for all people to come in and gawk at its wonder. Well, in 1974, some ILF students saw the incongruity of a theology of life with that symbol of death, and they protested the cover of the book, and they got the American Indian Movement involved, and eventually two members of Denver AIM came to ILF and negotiated the return of uh, the human remains from that book, the, the cover. And one of them, a uh, Wind River Shoshone and Northern Arapaho by the name of Wes Martell, took the remains north to Wind River Reservation where their Sundance elders uh, took it under care, took it into ceremony, uh, and eventually took it out and, and buried it somewhere in a respectful way, not knowing yet that the victim was Lenape. In fact, I've written two, published two essays, two articles. The first article I wrote, I did not yet know that the victim was Lenape. It was only when I uh, got ready to publish the second article that I discovered uh, in this newspaper article written an interview with uh, David Morgan's son, uh, Stephen Morgan, that, that the victims, both of them were Lenape men. So uh, that was step one, repatriating the cover. But then Ilef kept the book hidden away in a safe, not on display anymore, down in the basement of the library. Uh, when somebody finally, and it was a big secret at Ilef, somebody finally pulled me aside and said, you need to know about this. When I came 11 years later in 1985, I had to decide whether to stay at Ilef or leave. And I finally decided life would be no better in any other institution, that all these institutions have their secrets. So I took Cedar and went in on a Sunday morning when all the faculty and all the staff were off at church. And I smoked the building so much. This was before smoke alarms were everywhere. Smoked the building as much as I could reach so that uh, you, know, you had to wiped the smoke away to see down the hallway. Then I began a long process of research. I started by asking other colleagues. The one colleague had told me, none of my other colleagues would admit that they knew anything about it. Such was the uh, aura of secrecy. And they forced uh, Vincent Javier and uh, Wes Martel, the two AIM guys, into a non-disclosure agreement. 
And they agreed to that simply because they wanted to get that relative away from Aleph and into the hands of their spiritual elders who could deal with it in a more respectful way. So it took me another 10 years before I decided I could write about this because I'd be violating, even though I'm a member of AIM, I'd be violating the non-disclosure agreement as a faculty member of ILF <laughs> because AIM promised they would never violate that NDA. But enough years had gone by, I thought ILF needed to be embarrassed by that history of violence, by its participation in genocide of American Indians, its participation in that murder by harboring that trophyized uh, book with its cover. So in 2014, I finally published uh, that first essay. And even then I got some details wrong because it just took a lot of spade work to uncover what really happened. So once I finished the first essay, I began researching the second essay because I wanted to go back and, and talk about who actually committed the murder and how did it come about? And how did this man, David Morgan, become a hero in West Virginia? I mean, there's a statue to the man in Fairmont, West Virginia, where he's called a great frontiersman and Indian killer, as if that's something to be proud of. So I spent the next few years writing that essay. You know the routine as an American Indian. It became really important for me to footnote everything. I can't make claims the way white historians do and just slide by it. I need to document everything I say as factual. So, so it's a matter of spending a week nailing down one footnote, multiple trips to uh, the genealogy section of Denver Public Library or to one of the university libraries here hours and hours of online research where it's more and more available online. Then about the time I published that second essay, we got a new president at ILF, and it's made all the difference in the world. Tom Wolfe, who came here from Syracuse University, where he knew people like uh, Owen Lyons and other Onondagas, has promised a new era of transparency. So he's helped raise enough money that uh, we have a whole delegation now of Lenape elders coming to town uh, to advise Ilof on what to do with the remains of the book. Now, let me explain, because most of your hearers are probably not American Indian, Teokushin. We took the cover of the book before I got there, but that cover... That relative was attached to that book for nearly 200 years, from 1779 until 1974. That means that those same guys took care of one part of that. They took the cover. But the spirit of that man is still attached to that book. Uh, and Eilif has to deal now with that. It's not in their theology they no longer have any idea what goes on after somebody dies and the funeral is completed. You know, they go off to heaven to be with God. But we know that there's more to it than that. 
that the spirit of that man is not yet completely free to be at rest in that Wanagi world with his ancestors over there. So it was at that point that uh, some of our elders here in the Denver Indian community said to Aleph clearly a couple years ago, you need to ask the Lenape what to do with that book. The easiest thing in the world be, would be for Aleph to get rid of it, burn it, bury it, be done with it. Not only do we owe more to that man who was murdered, but I think I owe more to Aleph's school of theology than that because I worked there for 35 years. They need to have some mechanism, some way to remember always what they did. A hundred years from now, there's got to be a way for students to lift up their chins and say, oh yeah, Aleph did that. Otherwise, we run the risk of uh, repeating that same history over again, just as uh, you know, we're seeing Europeans repeat their history of violence uh, in Ukraine today. This is um, not surprising to me. It's not surprising what was revealed and how long they've taken to bring it out. I mean, it took Native people and the spirit of the Native man and the Native uh, Lenape people and I'm wondering, you know, about the, the the language that covered it up. I think something priceless vestment for the teachings of the brotherly love. And to me, that says for those peoples who are, you call the settlers. And then you come again to a, a place where the excavation of this history, the excavation layer by layer to get to the root of the problem. Is it still, well, that was then, that was yesterday, now today's today. And yet that still uninhabited history, uninhabited land. And it's like, okay, we had nothing to do with that. And then you have the Lenape people. And then what I like to think about is how much have we been colonized? Can we stand what, what is to come? Because there's much more than this Bible wrapped in native skin. Are we prepared as native people to even understand our own colonization within it? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. I mean, we've bought their framing of our genocide as not genocide, hook, line, and sinker. And we owe it to our young people, to my 13-year-old daughter, to let her know this happened. Not just this one incident, but it happened repeatedly across the continent. For instance, in the state of Minnesota, they still frame 1862 as the Dakota uprising. It was no uprising. The Dakotas, because the United States did not abide by its treaty obligations to the Dakotas, declared war against the United States. It was a war, a Dakota, the Dakota War, Dakota-U.S. War. And of course, as always, the Europeans from the very beginning had more killing weaponry than Indians could ever imagine. And hence, we lose time and time again. But to this day, it's framed in Minnesota as the Dakota uprising. And the, Dakota, the, 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 the people in Minnesota, white people, have convinced themselves they were wronged. And hence, they go up to Fort Snelling on Sunday in the spring and summertime and have wonderful, peaceful family picnics, not remembering. The 2,000 Dakota women and children and old people 
were, that were imprisoned there through that winter with no heat and not enough food and who died by the hundreds. That's framing. If you can frame the Indians as wrong, then you can live on Indian land, stolen land, with a conscience that is not bothered. Well, we play into that. Even as we pretend that we were once warriors. When our languages don't even have a word for war, let alone for warrior, that was their framing of us. Bloodthirsty, savage warriors with warlike cultures, uh, warrior cultures. I don't even know what the word warlike means. I mean, it, we look like a war. <laughs> Our culture looks like a war. When in truth, it was the Europeans who had that warrior culture. Even as they were invading our land, they were busy in Europe during the 17th century from 1618 to 1648, something they call the Thirty Years' War, where they killed, we're told, maybe as many as 11 million of each other in order to determine whether it was the Catholic or Protestant interpretation of the death of Jesus that, that was superior. And you're mind-boggling for natives, yet we're the warlike ones. And that wasn't the first war, nor the last war, where millions were killed. The century before was the Hundred Years' War. And of course, by the time we get to World War I and World War II, uh, there are millions killed in both, uh, both wars, uh, tens of millions in World War II. Who are the savages here? Who are the warlike peoples? Yet we've bought their framing that that was us. I had a Naga student from Northeast India, a Naga tribesman, a doctoral student, came into my office and he started to explain to me who he was as a Naga. And he said, we were headhunters. What do you mean you were headhunters? Oh, we would go out and have wars with neighboring villages so we could cut their heads off and collect heads. And I said, young man, you can be my student, but you have to go back to talk to your elders about that and find out what that actually was, because that's the way the British wrote your history. That's the way they framed you. And I guess uh, they had a certain house that, where they would line the entrance to the house and, and inside the house have lines of, of skulls. Well, once he went back and actually talked to the elders, they told him, no, we weren't uh, headhunters. Those are our ancestors. That's part of our funeral rite, is to keep that part of them. Totally different framing of, of the incident, yet they are known worldwide as headhunters because that's the way the British, who invaded their lands, framed them, described them. That's colonization. And it's ongoing. It's not just American Indians. Everywhere in the world, indigenous people have been colonized into believing that they are of less value than white people, European people, the colonizer. Yes, which reminds me of those who really are following the Constitution here in the United States, how within it is encoded, I would say, merciless Indian savages. 
right? <laughs> Still in there. And so we accept that, we salute it, we go to war for it. We're supposed to be the excellent, most excellent warriors, which could or could not be true. But also what I'm finding now, like, yeah, we've been so jaded that these white people are doing this against us. So we, we now we're told to forget the color, which is true. Uh, we didn't really have that idea of racism until the schematic of red, yellow, black, and white came along. Now I'm, as a younger person, I'm looking at this and hearing not just non-natives, and I, I'm saying non-indigenous peoples here that have the same ideas. I can, I'll use it for the context we're speaking in, bypassing all native history and renaming streets, renaming places, location sites after their own ancestors so that they've accepted yeah. Americans are doing to native people and it doesn't doesn't blink an eye they just continue to do it and i think that framework i'm setting up is that we also are doing that to ourselves yeah the dysfunctionality and the imbalance that we're finding ourselves in at this moment is incredible uh, and, and of course our, our job as american indians is to restore balance every day Every time we eat a meal, we have to restore the imbalance we've created by eating that meal because we're eating our ancestors. Corn, beans, squash, buffalo, deer, hamburger from Safeway. <laughs> Even beef, yes. My wife wants me to go on a program here in Denver hosted by an African-American man. And, and he's really smart. I really like what he does. But he buys wholly into this BIPOC language. I just won't go there. And if I go on his program, I'll have to explain to him why I can't use the word BIPOC. Why are we BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color? Why are we fronting Black people first when it's our continent? And sure, they remembered us and gave us a place in BIPOC, <laughs> but, but hey, wait a minute, slow down. You weren't here when the invasion came. And, and even when they started bringing Africans in by 1650, we need to remember, and we need to tell our own kids this, there were more Indian bodies being shipped, shipped out of Charleston than there were black bodies being shipped in. Indians were shipped out into slavery in the Caribbean, particularly in Jamaica, so that even slavery doesn't set blacks apart from our own uh, our own genocide, because that was a part of what we suffered as well. The language is important in how you frame it, as you referred to at the beginning of this interview, and how much have we converted, but how much can we, see, I'm using missionary language, how much can we confess that we have been converted so much into colonial that we don't even place ourselves first anymore? And now that I was uh, viewing on a recent film said that we learned how to be Americans so well that we forgot ourselves as native people. Yeah. When 2003, when the U.S. began its invasion of Iraq, which we now know was uh, absolutely wrong based on, uh, again, false framing of Iraq as having weapons of mass destruction as a political ploy to support you know, the Republican president at the time. I went up to Pine Ridge and got into a small village there called Allen, and was just stunned 
at their honoring of Indian veterans who were in the military in Iraq or had given their life in that cause, American flags in this little dusty village of Allen. I think it was a half a dozen American flags flying around this monument they created. I worry that our young people, men and women both, rush to the U.S. military in order to prove that colonialist framing that we were warriors when, as I said before, we don't even have that word in our languages. I, I remember when some AIM guys went to some elders at Pine Ridge to try and uh, get the elders to give a warrior name to uh, one of Russ's brothers who had fought in that war, then the Vietnam War. And the elders said, come back tomorrow and we'll tell you. They came back the next day and the elders said, we can't give him a warrior name. And the young AIM guys went bananas, said, why not? Why not? He's been defending our freedom over there in Vietnam and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the elders said, well, we can't give him a warrior name because we don't have the word warrior in Lakota. What we can do is give him a defender name because that's what Akichita means or in, in Osage, Akida, defender of the people. In every case, it means defender, not warrior. There's no word for war. Once they understood that, they were happy with the resolution. But see, we've bought into colonialism so much that our young are going off to be prove themselves as warriors in Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam, and, the, and Korea in, 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 in generations past. Somehow, we need to quit idealizing the goals of our colonizer as our own goals and quit staffing their armies because they are increasingly armies of people of color, including American Indians. Okay, that's Tink Tinker. We'll be right back here on First Voices Radio. My name is Teokas and Ghost Horse. The natural mystic blowing through the air And if you listen carefully now you'll hear This could be the first trumpet It might as well be the last Many more will have to suffer Many more will I don't tell no lie Things are not the way they used to be One and all have to face reality now No one tries to find the answers To all the questions they ask no one knows it's impossible to go on living through the past. Don't tell no lie. There's a natural mystic blowing through the air. And if you listen carefully now, you hear. 
This could be the first trumpet It might as well be the last Many more will have to suffer And many more will have to die I don't tell no lie There's a natural mystic Blowing through the air All right, all right. Thank you for returning to the second half of First Voices Radio. And Dr. Tink Tinker from the Washage or Osage Nation, or the people of the Middle Waters at the confluence of the Mississippi and the Missouri River. Osage is a French derivative and probably doesn't come close to the real meaning of Washage. We continue to spend a little more time with Tink Tinker as we finish out these next 10 minutes or so of the interview in a dialogue. In a conversation, sharing ideas and hearing each other's thoughts, no matter how extreme they may be, all is acceptable and given respect and honor to expression of our respective peoples, the Wasage and the Lakota. Both are relative nations with relatable languages with similar meaning behind the sounds of the words. I'm your host for First Voices Radio, and my name is Teokas and Ghost Horse, and thank you for joining us. Let's continue on with Tink Tinker. What are we going to do now? Um, other than what we can do within this colonial context, but also with the earth. I grew up think, thinking that there was something wrong all the time. I could not ever not think it. Yes, that's the Christianity. Yes, that's the American way. And yes, this is what happened to us as people, as Native people. And yes, this is a ceremony. But then all of those seemed more like we had to perform for others and even individualizing ourselves that we perform so that we could fit in. So the relational value, the midakoye, I didn't really understand it until I got away from it all, that it was all tainted with colonialism. And once I was able to distances, which, which I didn't want to do because that was my involvement when I was younger, now understanding that there's much more than the humanistic side of us to the uh, non-anthropocentric. So when I'm into understanding that, wow, look, Tink, we've we've made animal poverty here. We've we're not even thinking about this other life force. We're always worried about ourselves and our citizen rights, and you know whether or not we we're going to get enough from from the government. So I'm, I'm thinking about okay, so stop complaining, Tiokazin. Just do right what's right in front of you and and be aware so understanding the energy as pure as that can be which to me using this language will take you out into a new agey space but i know what this is all about right it is it is what it is and so this is what i'm applying to this practical mystery and i don't have never felt this this land is uninhabitable or uninhabited by native people yes it's hard to find each other but now it's at a place where I know they're there without having to see. Yeah, I, I, I would concur with that entirely. And I, I guess one of my pet thoughts that I live every day is, how do we teach our young people to feel deep down in their muscles and bones relationship 
I use a maple tree outside my window here. That's my relative. I'll go out and touch that tree from time to time just to say hello. To, to feel relationship with the bunnies. Uh, we live in a townhome, so we have a green belt down the front. The bunnies that drop too much of their poop everywhere. <laughs> They're still my relatives. And so is a red-tailed hawk that, that lives, uh, a pair of them that live here, they come back year after year, who uh, help thin out the bunny population. <laughs> they're, they're doing their part to keep the universe in balance. What are we doing to keep the universe in balance? What's my role in that? What's my little daughter's role in that? It's not about what is my right as an individual. It's about what we as a community, as a family, are doing to give back to the universe, to grandmother, to the earth, to the land. And I, you know, I fear especially, I, I know I don't idolize life on the reservation. I know too much about the dysfunctionality there. But we now have, what, 70% of Indian people live in cities. Indian kids growing up in the cities who no longer even acknowledge what nation they're from. Where are you from? Denver, I was born here. Now, where are your relatives? What reservation are you from? Who are your people? And even then it's hard because we're so mixed anymore. Well, I've got one grandpa from Pine Ridge. I've got a grandma from Cheyenne, from from Northern Cheyenne. I've got a grandma who's Choctaw and and a grandpa who's Cherokee. (laughs) And my daughter who's uh, adopted, but she's Osage girl, is enrolled both Osage and Cherokee. So when we adopted her, we had to force the uh, child welfare people here in town to deal with both nations (laughs) to satisfy the Indian Child Welfare Act. Uh, He said, oh, no, we don't need to do that. Yes, we do. (laughs) We certainly do. You better do it. Pink Tinker, I think part of understanding, and we could go further with, with what we're talking about, and I really would like to maybe extend something in the future about speaking beyond the the eventfulness that we have that we are been forced to choose we're forced to choose one way or the other it seems so we get to think binarily then we are, are taught to debate what we've chosen and then finally we end up defending what we've chosen yet there's no opportunity to, to work with that mystery that if in between that you can you can have a choice about what you want to do but we are taught the wrong way and so so it's like a bypass everything's bypassing out of the city i grew up on a reservation i was told you go off the reservation you get your education then you come home and help, help the people well i went home to help the people but there was no jobs <laughs> no jobs so like okay uh what am i going to do and a disparity of of and when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, I'm looking at all this. And I, there's not much I can do. So I had to go off and to help the people, which I was able to do, even so. I mean, and bring the news of that. You're a journalist. You write. You, you taught. And I think we, we have to do with what we're given in a sense that I always remember the mystery. It's uh, to always remember the people first, the earth. Um, and so I, living that is, is difficult in a society that first has forgotten that. 
and puts humans first rather than life. Well, our European relatives have done that for centuries now. And our own people, little by little, by osmosis, have begun to absorb that you're a Christian way of being and behave that way. Yeah, there's so much we could talk about in that regard. So, so many abstractions that make their way from uh, the Euro-Christian uh, noun-based language in, into our life uh, and become our own. Abstractions like freedom, uh, you know, nobody can tell. Everyone has a different explanation of what freedom is. You know, they write books about it. And the books don't agree with one another. But but that's what we're all about in America. We're Americans for freedom, defending our freedoms, whatever that is. Uh, I guess the freedom for the rich to determine uh, uh, what the rest of us will believe and do and say and think. Uh, I was struck a couple years ago when I was told that every member of the U.S. Congress is a millionaire. So let's run for office then. You know, that's the mentality. Let's <laughs> run for office. No, it, it's really been a great talk with you. And I want, next time I want to talk about something is because I work on a language a lot with some other natives here, either going from coming from the urbanization, trying to restore their values as native people. And then the native peoples who have come from a reservation trying to make it into bigger world. So there's yeah. coming together. Yeah. So and one thing that I've said to them my, in my studies and in, in, deal, in talking with my mother, who is a, a fluent Lakota speaker, she said that, you know, son, we can talk all day without saying a single noun in Lakota. He said, she said, that's the old way. The new way is <laughs> noun, you know, objectified, subjective. So, yeah, I think we should talk about that next time and really... Bring that out so people can understand more. I think we can't give away secrets because you can't really break Lakota apart because it can't be. It's a relationship. Yeah. That's where New Ageism came along, to take our objects and make them holy or something. I don't know what they do with it. You know? <laughs> holy is another word we don't have. Yeah. That's the whole thing. <laughs> holy. It's got holes in it. That's all theory, right? So, but no, it's good. It's good that you're here. Thank you for taking time out. And, and uh, you say you're busy, and I like to be that busy sometimes too. So, but thanks. It's a good, a great honor always to, to talk with you, Tink. Yeah. Anytime. I enjoy being with you. It's very different being interviewed by an Indian guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not as mechanical. Huh? Who, what, when, where? Yep. 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 Be well. I will. Thank you. Doksa akhe wa chinkatalo. Kashinkatalo Thank you for being well. I bring you greetings from the indigenous peoples of North, Central, and South America. Indeed, I bring you greetings from the indigenous peoples of the world. There must be parity and equity between rich and poor nations, between white people and people of color, and rich people, poor people, 
with special attention to women, children, and indigenous peoples. We, in our collective voices, add to this, that there must be a reconciliation between peoples and the natural world, between nation states and the forests that sustain us, between corporations and the resources that they mine, the fish they catch, and the water that they use. Leaders of the world, the indigenous nations and peoples believe in the spiritual powers of the universe. We believe in the ultimate power and authority of a limitless energy beyond our comprehension. We believe in the order of the universe. We believe in the laws of creation that all life is bound by these same natural laws. This is what gives the world the energy to create and procreate and becomes the ponderous and powerful law of regeneration, the law of the seed. We, in our collective voices, speak to this to remind you that the spirit and spiritual laws transcend generations. We know because this has sustained us. Peace is dynamic and requires great efforts of spirit and mind to attain unity. Leaders of peace must step forward and take responsibility for a paradigm change in the direction of current lifestyles and materialistic societies. The human species has become the most voracious and abusive consumer of Earth's resources. We have tipped the balance of life against our children and we imperil our future as a species. Leaders of the world, there can be no peace as long as we wage war upon our mother, the earth. Responsible and courageous actions must be taken to realign ourselves with the great laws of nature. We must meet this crisis now. We still have time. We offer these words as common peoples in support of peace, equity, justice, and reconciliation. As we speak, the ice continues to melt in the north. Thank
This is Teokazin Ghost Horse, and thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. Yeah, that might have been a pretty heavy radio program for most of you, but it's, uh, when I go back to the CRT, how do you say it, uh, critical race theory? But I say it, critical thinking. We need critical thinking. The truth in history that's, that's not there, you know, to, to put Native people first in our own land, it will do you a favor of straightening the order that's needed here with the land, with the people, with your politics, with your science, with your knowledge that you came here with a plan and it's not working out. Nature has a plan. And like Orrin Lyons, who was there right after Think Tinker spoke. And as you know, Think Tinker is a professor um, we've had on a few times before. Then Orrin Lyons spoke about where we're at in this time and what we must be doing and how we must change. And we could always talk about that, but the system has no brakes. And when it has no brakes and you're on the same, <laughs> you're on the same vehicle going nowhere, progress doesn't make sense after a while because you see it go by. You bypass with it and you're not really grounded. So in, in that same sense, then the uh, On a Road to Hell by Chris Rhea, On the Road to Hell, it's... Uh, a thought that came way back in the 80s, I think that was, for those of you old enough, and maybe not old enough, but, you know, when you watch society the way it is, and you come from the original culture here, that is not part of the people of color, but the people of culture, indigenous peoples first, then black people, and then you can say people of color, but it should be always first indigenous peoples, and then everybody else after that. That's going to change, and if you don't change, then, you know, we'll be feeling like always out of order and out of rhythm, and so it's decision time. We say this, um, so, but thank you for listening to this little rant here, and um, we're going to finish out with Eddie Vedder, so thank you for joining us here. My name is Teokas and Ghost Horse.
Without me, society.